Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Very, very few American musical artists of the 20th century cast a shadow as large or as important or influential as James Brown. One can easily make the argument, without hyperbole, that James Brown is easily one of the five most singularly important, influential, impactful, era-defining, culture-changing, simply greatest American musical figures of the 20th century. Ray Charles may have been the architect of soul in how he combined the secular and the holy, rhythm and blues and gospel in the 1950s. But what made James Brown, quote unquote, the godfather of soul was how he took the Ray Charles template and created a mongrel, bestial variation of soul. Gritty, sweaty, dirty, grimy, hot, bothered, horny, funky. Brown took R&B and soul music and accentuated rhythm like no artists of his time or like no other afterward. And if any afterward did so, they were just following the James Brown template and expanding on it. He was rawer and more uncompromising than Ray Charles or Sam Cooke ever dared to be. He wasn't smooth and polished like the great Motown acts out of Detroit. He was even wilder, dirtier, and grittier than the great Stax acts out of Memphis. Brown delivered intense, heavy, ass-shaking southern soul that challenged you not to dance, steeped in gospel minus any semblance of Christianity. The only sense of worship in this music was to Brown's meteoric ego and his music, and by extension all black American music, was better off for it. Beyond the music, more than any African-American musical artist of his era, his rags-to-riches, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap story was a model and inspiration for millions of black Americans at the dawn of and throughout the civil rights movement in the middle of the century. He was a model of self-sufficiency, independence, independent entrepreneurship and business, and being an activist who consistently and generously gave back to his community while vocally and bravely espousing equal rights for his people. And this was before he invented what we now know as funk by introducing the philosophy of the one in 1966, kickstarting a musical revolution that not only defined the era of black music in the late 1960s through the 1970s, but almost single-handedly laid down the foundation for hip-hop and some of EDM's funkier styles. By the end of his life, after his huge commercial comeback via Hollywood movies in the 1980s, and in spite of his troubled history with women and drugs, He was an unassailable icon on the level of Elvis Presley, a man who artistically and spiritually gave birth to Michael Jackson and Prince. This will be the first of a three-part series where we track the trajectory of one of the most astonishing careers in not just American popular music, but all of music history. James Brown was never, is not now, and never will be an artist whose merit should be judged by albums. He was the quintessential singles artist, and in that regard, his discography is every bit as important, 
timeless, enduring, and culture-defining as those of the Beatles and Bob Dylan. So, join us as we track James Brown from his dirt-poor beginnings through his conquering of the Southern Chitlin circuit of clubs and bars up to his breakthrough to white America on the Billboard pop chart in the mid-1960s. This is part one, 1956 to 1965, of James Brown, the super bad Mr. Dynamite of all legacies. Here's a James Brown quote uh, that I found in the course of preparing uh, for this episode. Quote, I taught them everything they know, but not everything I know. Now, (laughs) Uh, Given the explosiveness and boundary disintegrating power of his career output and influence, that might not just be an opinion from Brown. Uh, He really is one of rock and roll and R&B's true geniuses and maybe the truest. Uh, Really delighted to be able to uh, kick off this three-part series. You know, what a privilege, man. Ow! That's a a James Brown lyric. He wrote that. Yep. Uh, it, God, God bless Eddie Murphy for bringing that bit into the world. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Top yeah, hot tub. Top too hot. Tub. Yeah, too hot. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's uh, it's some good stuff. Uh, good stuff. And so yeah, we're gonna be talking about the life, the legacy, and uh, the music, most especially the music of uh, Mr. Dynamite, uh, James Brown. Uh, clearly part the one. hardest. Yeah, part one. Uh, the man worked so hard, we have to do three parts just to catch up with him. Uh, he really was the hardest uh, working man in show business. Something will establish. I mean, the numbers and the output and the volume and, and some of the stories are just so crazy that, you know, that even telling them, uh, you know, kind of engenders disbelief. You, you know what else, where else you have to kind of suspend disbelief, Arturo? Where? Where? Uh, the parallel universe. I mean, obviously, it's it's unbelievable when that rip in the space time continuum goes over, and we get to go experience the wonder and the power of rock and roll that never ever died. Now, granted, it's it still hasn't died. It's a niche, but over there, it flourishes like grass and flowers and the trees, and uh, a way of saying that the Thai seagulls of the world are still on the billboards and selling out the arenas and are on the cover of the rock and roll magazines. Yes, there are is such a thing as more than one rock and roll magazine in the parallel universe. Uh, that's a long way of saying that we cover new albums uh, by artists we think that you should uh, pay, uh, pay attention to. Uh, this year is kind of uh, becoming a repeat of 22. I used to call that the year of the pretty good, and we're back to the pretty good this year. So what's your pretty good record for this episode, Arturo? Yeah, straight out of the Virginia suburbs comes a young woman by the name of Lyle Neal, L-A-E-L, and then Neal, N-A-A-L, whose third album, Star Eater's Delight, can be best described as charmingly lo-fi alternative pop. The brilliant opening track, I Am the River, would be a single in a parallel universe where good rock music is still a thing, and it unfolds with this incessant rhythm and glisten glistening guitar lines that kind of make the makes the they, they all make the track come off like a pocket-sized joy division. Um, afterward the album trails off for three songs into the kind of whiny, mopey, continuously slow bedroom ballad bullshit that so many female and even some male artists today wallow in looking at you, Phoebe Bridgers. However, the album picks up in the middle and the last four tracks shimmer with irresistible melodic beauty and lyrics that are affecting more than they are effacing. Among the best of the bunch, No Holds Barred and the blissfully yearning Return to Me Now. It's a lovely three and a half star album that in what has been so far a generally shitty year for music, stands in my top five of the year, damning with faint praise. <laughs> Chris? Yeah, uh, 2023 brought to you by three and a half stars. Uh, I think this <laughs> kind of been the theme of this year so far. Uh, here's another instance of that. Uh, this is an instance, uh, and it's a long and illustrious tradition in rock and roll, where the lead song carries the rest of the record. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, I Am the River is fabulous, fabulous uh, pop. It's almost like gospel inflected pop. It's got that uh, it's got that organ spike to it that almost goes back to the girl group. Uh, it it kind of spices girl group with new wave uh, in some ways because right. both of them you know had that that organ uh, spiked feel. And so that's a, a, a trip in the time machine right there. And she does that very, very well. Uh, the problem is, is that the song is there uh, for I Am The River. The rest of the album, the songs really kind of aren't for the most part. And it kind of rambles and ambles and uh, is a little all over the place. It's, and in some senses, it's a little too precious for its own good. I mean, that's the in this genre, I guess, if you want to call it, of of. Uh, artists, you know, Phoebe Bridgers at the top, but there's, there's a preciousness to it that, that kind of, uh, stains it a little bit. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, at, at least with Bell and Sebastian, they did twee pop, but their twee pop was catchy. It had hooks, yeah. it had things that were arresting about it, you know? Yeah. And, and it was sincere. Yeah. Uh, you know that, so you, you didn't doubt whether it was sincere because, you know, they couldn't fake their sincerity. Uh, I don't think she does either, but she does. Again, I am the river is good. The rest of it, uh, not not really. Uh, so I, I like I like the second half. The second half is solid. I think. Yeah, I, you know, it, yeah, you're right. It, towards the end of the record, it it, it does get better. But this is, uh, you know, she's got a future. Uh, I think that if she does more of that kind of tight, uh, soaring uh, rock, almost rockish ballad, like soul ballad type of thing. Uh, then I think that she's she's looking at uh, at a, a very a very bright future. So, uh, Lael Neal, I guess it's worth checking out. Like the rest uh, of this year, we're in the three and a half star realm. Uh, speaking of three and a half stars, here's more three and a half stars for you. So, Duran Jones, uh, he is a young uh, retro soul singer. Uh, this has been a good era for retro soul. Uh, and he's part of that scene or uh, a member of, of that genre. And he's he's a pretty compelling character, actually. So he is originally from this very small town uh, along the banks of the Mississippi River. Uh, it is Hillaryville, Louisiana. And uh, on this record that I'm covering, Wait Till I Get Over, which is his solo debut, uh, he does a little spoken word piece telling you about Hillaryville. Uh, it's a little town that was founded by eight slaves and is known for producing sugarcane, which probably explains why the cover of this album has Duran Jones in this uh, very loud uh, suit jacket and no shirt, uh, very lovingly holding on to an uh, impossibly tall stalk of sugarcane. And, you know, he's, you know, he says that his mama still thinks it's the best place on earth. Uh, and so this record really uh, is his love letter to Hillaryville, Louisiana, and his experiences growing up and sort of the feelings that uh, he formed uh, coming out of it. Uh, until now, uh, Jones has been known more as the leader of a band uh, called Duran Jones and the Indications. And the Indications comes out of his student experience I believe he went to uh, undergraduate and maybe graduate school for music there at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, apparently, they have a pretty good music program. They're not just known for Bobby Knight. And uh, they had some modest success in the retro R&B world. Uh, they've done three albums. This is The Indications. Uh, the most highly regarded of these is 2021's Private Space, which is a funny listen uh, not necessarily in the best way, because it's a very slickly renden- uh, rendered uh, collection of slow jams and then up-tempo thumpers uh, that are so old school, uh, you expect J.T. Taylor from Cool and the Gang to bust out with a verse from Celebrate uh, <laughs> at, at any moment. I mean, it, it, it really is got that much lacquer uh, to it. Uh, well, Jones is now firmly on his own and freed uh, from that label of that kind of that slick uh, polished uh, R&B that he did with the indications, and he's doing anything but slick here on Wait Till I Get Over. Uh, he's He's got a really interesting voice. There's a lot of grit and a lot of texture uh, to it and a lot of range. I mean, he can go from pure unironic romanticism as on string-laden album opener Jerry Marie, and then he can, he can go to the belting, soaring gospel tones of the title track. Uh, which was clearly recorded live as gospel choirs don't sound much more organic or rich or old wooden churchy 
as the one there does. Uh, very <laughs> minimal accompaniment. The song might as well be a cappella. And then he goes to dripping, growling sensuality on uh, the song Lord Have Mercy, which might as well be uh, garage rock from the late late 60s. It's kind of got this uh, almost like Percy Sledge kind of energy uh, to it, you know, in very late 60s when uh, psychedelia kind of tinged everything, including the up-tempo dance soul uh, of that moment. So, so he's still retro, but it's way more organic and way more granola. Uh, musically, he's just as uh, diverse and unpredictable. Uh, he does some, uh, some really uh, earthy 70s arrangements, you know, think Donny Hathaway and, and Billy Preston. Uh, but he also does, and one of the other highlights of the record is he does a cover of Donny Hathaway's Someday We'll All Be Free. Uh, starts off as a reverent take, you know, Soaring Soul with, you know, very syrupy, uh, smooth uh, lyrics. But then it bursts out into this wall of uh, almost fuzz and, and sort of jamming, not disco, but I don't know. It's kind of a twisted psychedelic soul uh, thing. That then becomes accompanied by a, a rapper named Skype, uh, yeah. S K Y P P. Yeah, uh, to, to me the juxtaposition isn't doesn't doesn't really sell it for me in that track. No, no, no. It, it and it's awkward. It, it's awkward, but it, there's no there no he's not shackled on this record, and so right. you know I kind of admire the uh, the experimentation of of something like this. So it's like retro soul plus which is good because a lot of these retro soul albums, they don't have any plus, which makes them all sound the same after a yeah. while. It's yeah. almost like a, it's almost like a running uh, a dialogue or a running diary. Well, uh, this sort of breaks from the diary at least. And as if to underscore, he truly is from the banks of the mighty Mississippi. Uh, Jones ends this record with two minutes of the sounds of rolling waters. And at one point, uh, chirping bird, truly steeping his identity in the beauty and the wonder of where he came from. It goes on long enough to be profound, but not long enough to get annoying. Uh, it's a very nice touch in a surprisingly strong album full of them. So I definitely say check out Duran Jones's Wait Till I Get Over. Three and a half stars, but <laughs> it's it's you're more interesting than your typical one from 2023 thus far. Yeah, um, to me this album is just, you know, it's okay. You know, it's all right. It's a retro revival R and B soul. You know, um, it's uh, it just makes me want to go back and listen to the nineteen sixties and seventies originals. <laughs> um, yeah. If I had one complaint about this record, it's uh, one real complaint. It's a little too histrionic at times. Yeah. Um, it's a little too maudlin. Well, he, he lays it on too thick at times. But I guess if he's going for that gospel soul thing, I guess he kind of has to do that. Yeah, but, uh, and, and, and keep in mind that the context of the record is it's his tribute to Hillaryville. And sure. so you know, Hil Hillaryville is his old school, again, it's a slave-found town, so of course you're going to sure. go retro sure. and you know, a, little, a little bit uh, more confessional than yeah. you might otherwise. Yeah, but you know, anyway. It's, it's pleasant retro revival, R&B soul. It's you know, good music to, I guess, have in the background while you're washing dishes or taking a shit. Okay, uh, and also influenced by James Brown, uh, who... <laughs> Uh, to, to be honest with you, if you want to do the treadmill, James Brown. If you want to take a shit, James Brown. Why? Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Welcome to part one of our run through the Mr. Dynamite uh, wonderful catalog of James motherfucking Brown. Uh, Super bad. Yeah. Both of us uh, love uh, Mr. Brown. 
and not just because of the uh, unending humor, but the music is extraordinary. G- generally speaking, James Brown equals jaw drop, that everything about the man, his biography, his music, his personality, uh, the way he rendered things, uh, his live recordings, uh, the volume, sheer volume of his output is and not the like sheer, the sheer influence is just immeasurable. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely immeasurable. It truly is uh, jaw dropping. Uh, here's a quote to set us up. Uh, and uh, then Arturo will uh, do what he does best, which is give us the biographical take and uh, the smooth tones of a narration. Yes, so uh, here's a quote to start with from Mr. Brown and uh, brainy quote, by the way, brainy quote and Goodreads, folks, if you ever want uh, quotes uh, from anybody you can think of, uh, those two sites are, are wonderful uh, uh, depositories of quotes. Anyway, here's a quote from James Brown, quote, I used to think like Moses. That knocked me down for a couple of years and put me in prison. Then I started thinking like Job. Job waited and became the wealthiest and richest man ever because he believed in God. And that's from James Brown. Well, he, the man had himself an ego and he had high standards uh, to, to, yeah. to compare of people to compare himself to. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Joe, Job is uh, even lofty even for him. I, I That one's kind of surprised me. I didn't think he was that audacious. But, hey, we are talking about James Brown. There's no limits. No limits. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. All right. Well, one of these days I will get uh, um, my inner Ken Burns on and do my best Ken Burns impression. But not yet. Not for <laughs> this one. Um, I'll just be myself. James Brown (laughs) grew up in such impoverished, deprived conditions that making it and being as successful as he became as he became really does defy belief. He was born in 1933 to a 21-year-old Joseph Brown and 16-year-old Susie Bailing in a small wooden shack in the woods of Barnwell, South Carolina. It was a wooden shack that had no toilet, no running electricity, no running water. It was bad. Joseph worked low-wage manual labor jobs with most of his money or whatever of it he can earn, could earn, coming from working in labor camps, stripping turpentine from pine trees. The poverty got to be a little too much for Susie, who abandoned the family when young James was either four or five years old. Not one to raise a child by himself, Joseph soon took James to Augusta, Georgia, and left him with one of his aunts, uh, I guess one of Joseph's sisters or cousins or whatever, and, uh, and this aunt ran a brothel. So, yes, young James Brown spent his formative years growing up in Augusta, Georgia, living in a whorehouse. It must be noted that James's parents did have occasional reconciliation moments where James would on occasion move back in with them, but those periods were usually short-lived. To make matters worse, he went through a great deal of verbal and physical abuse during this time, receiving it from his aunt, from some of the men who frequented this brothel, and from his father, who would make periodic visits and beat the crap out of him. Whatever psychological effects this may have had on young James were deeply internalized as, as you would expect, a rough, tough upbringing ended up producing a rough, tough kid. Um, Sure, he went to school, but his grades were never good. Uh, He never had enough new or clean clothes or money to get by, and he dropped out of school by around the age of 14. By then, his life revolved around two pursuits— criminality, and music. Um, He learned to play piano and a little guitar around this time by hanging out with whichever friends had the instruments to spare, and he showed a facility for them. Uh, He had an even greater facility for dancing. Uh, There was a military base in Augusta, or near Augusta, and uh, during World War II, uh, soldiers would venture out to the quote-unquote, black part of town where James's aunt's brothel was, as well as a bunch of other brothels and nightclubs and bars playing live music. Young James became adept at buck dancing, a, a kind of tap dancing on the streets, getting paid by passing pedestrians and especially soldiers, uh, and make extra money by directing these horny potential customers to various clubs and brothels. 
But James's real source of money was crime, particularly theft, small-time burglary, and stealing car parts, namely tires and hubcaps. Uh, he was involved in gangs, even wore colors, quote-unquote, basically handkerchiefs to identify gang affiliation. Yes, they had this back in the 1940s. And he was quite adept at using a switchblade. Um, during this time, he had a very brief career as a budding young boxer. Uh, in the legendary 1952 novel Invisible Man, author Ralph Ellison vividly describes battle royales in which a group of 15 to 20 young black men, ranging from preteens to teenagers, would be blindfolded, put in a boxing ring, and forced to fight each other blindly in a bloody, savage battle Yikes. until one kid remained. Wow. All of this, of course, while an audience full of older white men would watch with glee and place wagers on the participants. Wow, it, this sounds like Django Unchained. It really kind of is. In fact, in a little disturbing and a seedy part of American history, back in those days in the South, these tournaments were exactly how young black men would be scouted for potential careers in boxing. Ever heard of Joe Lewis? Ever yep. heard of Jack Johnson? Yep, yep, they did this thing. And young James Brown participated in these tournaments and soon afterward started boxing in some amateur welterweight matches. We don't know if boxing would have been young James's calling card because in 1949, at the age of 16, he was arrested and convicted of robbery and sent to a juvenile detention center in Tacoa, Georgia. Now, uh, one of the local churches would stage various events with this detention center. Uh, these would range from the teenage gospel choir performing shows at the detention center to baseball games between some of the younger church members and the inmates. It was at these events where a young man named Bobby Bird, one of the lead church singers, befriended young James and bonded with him over their shared love of music. Uh, in 1952, Bird's family agreed to sponsor Brown, and he was let out on parole in conjunction with a two-year work sponsorship at a car dealership. Brown soon began singing with Bird and his brothers and sisters in their church choir. In 1954, however, Bird and Brown got the idea to form their own traveling gospel group called the Gospel Starlighters, this eventually evolved into an R&B band with actual musicians called the Avons and eventually settling on the famous Flames. Uh, they were heavily influenced by vocal heavy R&B and doo-wop groups such as Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, the Orioles, and Billy Ward and the Dominoes. Yep. Yet the famous Flames, being from the South and exclusively touring the South, had a decisively dirty, gritty sweaty style, epitomized by James Brown, whose wild man antics and smoldering onstage charisma eventually led to him being the group's sole frontman. In 1955, the group moved to Macon, Georgia, for a chance at greater exposure and success, and it's there where they became friends with an up-and-coming rock and roller by the name of Little Richard. Richard hooked them up with his manager, a club owner by the name of Clint Brantley, who agreed to take on the famous Flames. Um, King Records was a rather large, extremely self-sufficient independent label based in Cincinnati that did their own production, promotion, record pressing, and distribution all in-house. They, al they already had a reputation for putting out tons of singles by blues, R&B, and soul artists. And they took an interest in this raw Southern soul group with this electric lead singer. The Famous Flames were signed to King's uh, subsidiary label, Federal Records. And in March 1956, they released their debut single, Please, Please, Please. And there you go. <laughs> Uh, yep, yep. There, there, there. You go, and 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 really, the rest, uh, the rest is history. Uh, coincidentally, in, in terms of uh, Brown's boxing career, uh, there's an obvious joke. Uh, I'll just go ahead and make. Get up off that thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just seeing James Brown as a as a boxer. Uh, boy, he must have had great footwork. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you pretty much said it. That uh, you know, when they first got going. 
it's amazing to me, by the way, Brown did not release a gospel record, even though wow. uh, him and Bird started in the gospel world. And, and clearly of all of those folks from down south in terms of gospel influence on their vocals, yeah, I guess Aretha Franklin and Sam Cooke uh, might mm. be the ones that compete uh, with Brown. Yeah, because uh, Brown, uh, Brown is—he he was a fabulous gospel style singer, but never yeah. actually did formal releases of gospel. So I've always found right. uh, that kind of unbelievable. Uh, don't underscore the influences of folks like Fats Domino on sure. Brown too, in terms yeah. of because you know Brown did—he didn't do much boogie woogie, but the boogie woogie he did was very, very, very Fats. And Ray uh, Charles. Don't underrate that, yeah. too. And Ray Charles and, and also Booker T and the MGs and what they were doing. And oh, so Booker T, Booker T came later. He's post. Yeah, James no, yeah, he's yeah, he's he's post James Brown, but it's like, you know, like early 60s or whatever. And so that's, you know, as he's approaching uh, his, you know, his breakout uh, fame, at least with white America, that's where the Booker uh, T comes from. And, you know, let's just put it this way, you know, Brown in his first 10 years. And we'll we'll get into this as we go through some of uh, you know some of his highlights and some of his greatest work. Uh, he spent that period chasing hits. I mean, if somebody yeah. was doing it, uh, he would do it too. You know, he would if there was a dance craze, you know, the mashed potatoes. We'll uh, talk about or, that very soon. <laughs> yes, if there was a dance craze, he would chase it. If there was a if there was a kind of a song, if if, if there was a baby, please don't leave me song. Well, yeah. Brown Brown followed up with baby. Like 10 maybe, please don't leave me songs, one of which would probably become a hit. I mean, that was his MO. Uh, Douglas Wolk uh, spent some time talking about that in his little 33rd, uh, 33 and a third uh, book on on the album Live at the Apollo, also yeah. coming uh, here soon in the episode. Uh, but it kind of makes that point that Brown, uh, it took him a while to find his thing or to just kind of admit that he had his thing. And to go with it full bore, which is not to say that the stuff from this period is uh, so so. It's actually amazing. Mm. Uh, you know, Br- Brown just like oozed with just talent. He, he's just like an extraterrestrial, if you think about it. He's like one of great rock's great extraterrestrials. And I guess that upbringing, uh, where you know, hey, you want to talk about a transferable skill set? Uh, crime, boxing, soul singing. Right. Uh, and it, it all it all transferred. It all kind of came from the same energy, you know? Yeah. I mean, a big difference between Brown and the rest of the famous flames is that they all had jobs and families to fall back on. James yeah. Brown had nothing to fall back on. Right. Music, yeah. Music was all he had. And that's one of the reasons that gave him his work ethic. Like, this is all I've got. This is all yeah. I have to do. All I can do. Yeah. And no fallback. Yeah. Yeah. You know, impoverished kid from and, and, rural and he put, yeah, yeah. He put pressure on himself. But he also put the same pressure on people all around him as well. Oh, yeah. Later on to negative effect, but, you know. Yeah, poor Bobby Bird. Can you imagine being the guy who founded James Brown? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, uh, you know, Bobby Bird had to live with that. It's like, okay, I had to live with this legacy that I unleashed uh, James Brown on the world. But I also kind of unleashed James Brown on myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bo- Bobby Bird, you know, like he's most famous for, you know, the we'll get into this in part two. That uh, he was he was the official backup singer of the one, yes. And so uh, just his his sort of staccato uh, on the one vocal uh, motifs, uh, yeah. really, yeah, Doing lots yeah. of yes, yeah, yeah, lo- lots of yes, and I'm a green man, uh, you know, hey. that, yeah, yeah, that that kind of stuff. That was Bobby Bird, but uh, and you guys will talk about it too. You know, Brown had a, an illustrious uh, history of stiffing the people that he worked with, and he unfortunately did that to the guy that sprung him from prison. On this episode, we gave you part one of our three-part James Brown retrospective extravaganza. For the next episode, we'll delve into the period of time that is undoubtedly James Brown's most fruitful impactful, influential, and culturally important period. Inspired by the rolling, shuffling grooves of New Orleans known by its denizens as the funk, Brown digs deep into that bag, strips away all melody and harmony, and crafts and creates a sound of pure rhythm that literally changes the world. It's not a far cry from funk to disco and electronic dance music. And in a little over 10 years, Brown's funk will give birth to a bastard child that will be raised in the Bronx, New York, by the name of hip-hop. 
Join us next time for the second installment of our trilogy, this one covering the span of 1966 to 1974. James Brown, the super bad Mr. Dynamite of all legacies. Now that we've talked about the James Brown origin story, we have the pleasure of starting to talk about James Brown's music. And Brown, uh, from the very first uh, time we hear him, was a born hit maker. Uh, how much of a hit maker was he? Uh, here are some Billboard uh, stats for you. Throughout the course of his career, he had at least 96 Hot 100 singles or that wow. charted in the 100. And he had 116 R&B hit singles on the R&B charts from Billboard. Now it was over the course of his life. And here's the thing that people need to know that, yes, uh, and we'll get to this, 1965 is when he officially uh, gets on the radar of white America, at least, or, or sort of television America. Uh, but he had nine top 10 R&B hits before then. Yeah. And so he was an established, uh, you know, he, he was a, 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 an American success story even before anybody with like big, big, big money uh, had anything to do with him. Self-made man to the end. So let us talk about these uh, influential songs and tracks that uh, put James Brown on the veritable map. Right. And I have to reiterate, it's songs and singles Yes. Perfect for the younger generation out there who would just like to listen to Spotify. Because oh, yeah. uh, James Brown was not, you cannot judge him by albums because nope. King Records, where he was on, they didn't believe in albums. Albums nope. were just platforms for like a few singles and a bunch of filler. They yeah, filled and, singles, but, singles, singles, singles. Right. And then, but what it leads to is there's a 1958 singles comp. Uh, that y'all should check out that's on the streaming site, sites and, and it, like round, rounds up the first 30 of these. And it's a fabulous, fabulous because it just never relents because it's all singles. Right. Exactly. Well, like I mentioned, the first one, his first big hit from 1956, number six in the R&B chart. Please, please, please. Now, this song was credited to just the famous flames when it came out. In this early stage of James Brown's career, it's his voice that jumps out. It's this raw, gravelly, pained desperation rooted in years of poverty, prison time, racism, and social marginalization. Brown's relentless funk is what he's always known for and should be. But it's as a vocalist where he isn't given enough credit, I think. Uh, while other folks like Ray Charles and Sam Cooke, we mentioned them earlier, they may have had technically better voices. No one lives or lived inside and bit into the lyrics like James Brown did. Uh, in this song, lyrically, he's pleading for his woman to come back to him. But really, he's pleading for the audience to come to him. Uh, illustrative of his desire, actually his obsession to rise above his station, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And as a singer, uh, the, the only uh, other... R&B or soul singer that's even in James Brown's zip code in terms of just natural, innate creativity and originality of expression as a vocalist is Michael Jackson. Hmm. That, you know, Brown- I would is say Otis Redding, but- Yeah, Redding might be there too, but I just, you know, Brown just had an eccentricity and just sort of a natural uh, interpretive gift, uh, very much so. And, and, and this song is definitely indicative of it because the song and the music itself- is very much uh, capturing of the formulaic swinging piano and duop driven tempos and stylings right. of that era. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the Orioles uh, before. I would think like the Moonglows uh, and bands like that. So it's, it, it very much uh, fits into that uh, sound of the era. But man, Brown was a hell of a singer. I mean, he gets so much sensual mileage when he has that one, there's that one section there where he's like, ah, 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 you know, yeah. just sort of repeating the eye. I mean, he get he drags as much juice out of that eye as humanly <laughs> possible. And so it's just a, it's just a gift uh, for him to be able to do that. Uh, coincidentally, on the latest edition of Rolling Stone's list of the greatest songs of all time, uh, from 2021, uh, Please, Please, Please comes in at number 143. Mm, it's not bad. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. All right. The next big hit that he had, Try Me, from 1958. 
his first number one R&B song on the R&B chart and number 48 in the pop chart. Now, a whole year elapsed between Please, Please, Please and Try Me. A slew of singles were released that all flopped and King Records was on the verge of dropping the famous flames from the label. Brown addressed the issue by firing Clint Brantley as manager, installing himself as the group's manager, and then hiring Ben Bart of the Universal Attractions talent agency as their booking agent. Bart eventually became a de facto co-manager, and his first line of business was to put Brown's name in front of the band, therefore now becoming James Brown and his famous Flames. This enraged most of the members of the band who quit out of protest. Bobby Bird, ever so faithful, remained. A new band of famous flames were formed, and thus begins the legend of James Brown as the iron-fisted, strict dictator. However, you cannot argue with the results. Try Me was a major hit. It saved Brown's career, and it's easy to see why. The smoldering passion of his vocals and what is otherwise a pretty straightforward love song is what sells it. There's a childlike vulnerability to Brown's delivery, which he never really showed again after this song, that not only sells the song, but brings it home. Um, always underrated as a ballad singer, when Brown asks a, pers- a prospective lover to try him, he's begging the listener to bring him into their heart and make him the star that he's destined to be. Yep. Uh, every... R&B singer, popular R&B singer and R&B group of this era had their own Earth Angel. Yeah. And uh, this is essentially Brown's uh, version of that, that sort of that waltzy romantic crooner uh, song. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Sam Cooke obviously had several of of those. And so this is Brown's. Uh, Brown is just a lot better at it than a lot of these folks. Sure. And, you know, he's obviously there's an emphasis on the horns here, which obviously became more of a trademark as he went on. And, uh, you know, the backup singers, I mean, there's a, there's a nice doobie doobie doo kind of thing going on. There's a, there's the sexuality definitely is more in the music than the vocals. I mean, it's a terrific vocal performance, but the sexuality I think is more in the music Mm. and it's the rhythm that really draws me in. And I mean, obviously that becomes a big theme for Brown Mm. as his, uh, as his uh, career and his musical uh, vocabulary and identity, uh, forms. And so this rhythm, it sways. And so a lot of these crooners are, they have that waltzy sweat, but the swaying is practically a dance move. Yeah. <laughs> it sways so hard uh, on this song. And so it's, it's really, really great stuff. I can see it. It, it actually got the number 48 on the pop charts. Yeah. So, it was a big so, hit. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty, and so the idea is that even at this point, he's sneaking into the top 50 on billboard. So right. Uh, kind of an early indication of what was to come. Sure. The next essential James Brown song, Do the Mashed Potatoes from 1960, credited to Nat Kendrick and the Swans, number eight in the R&B chart, number 84 in pop. Now, by 1960, James Brown had burnished a reputation on the Southern Chitlin circuit as the most physical, visceral, powerful performer in all of R&B and soul music. He was a dazzling dancer, and one of the many dances he incorporated into his act at this time was a regional favorite called the Mashed Potatoes. With moving your heels in and out, it was basically an updated version of the 1920s Charleston dance. In any Hmm. case, Brown wanted to capitalize on the popularity of his dance craze and record an instrumental. Sid Nathan, the head of King Records, thought it was a bad idea and refused refused to allow it. So Brown, being the enterprising maverick that he was, took the song and his band to Dade Records, run by his friend Henry Stone in Miami. Since Brown was contractually bound to King Records, uh, Brown had to change the name of the recording artist and even had the voice of local radio DJ Carlton Coleman overdubbed on it, (laughs) cover up Brown's voice. Yep. Um, on its own merit, it's a terrific blues-based dance number that really pioneered the kind of instrumental Southern soul that the likes of Booker T and the MGs and the Barkays would specialize in later in the decade. Chris? Absolutely. Uh, it just underscores and it, it just goes to show that Brown, uh, he was a great dancer. I and mean, that yeah. was the thing. He, it, you know, he comes along when TV is starting and... Mm-hmm. 
he he's just he's a consummate showman. He's like the consummate showman, but he I whatever dance craze you wanted to give him, he would take it and he would just like super super duper size it. Right. Uh, it, because he had those ability like you know he had that style where you know like how the hell he could make his legs jiggle and slide like that. Yeah. And, like not fall on his ass. I never knew. <laughs> so yes, uh, if there was a dance craze, he could capitalize it because he could on it, uh, capitalize on it because he could dance it and dance it better yeah. than almost anybody. And it yeah. also just shows again, you know, Doug Wolk talks about it in his book that Brown just chased hit, uh, hits like dogs chase fire hydrants. Right. Uh, wait, 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 wait. There's a dance craze. Oh, we got to get a hit about that, man. We, we need a hit. Yeah. I don't <laughs> hear a hit. So we're going to get a hit. And yeah. then he would like record like a lot of times it'd be like a dozen songs and yep. one of them would become a hit. And then you'd have like nine terrible songs. Uh, hey, you know, prolificness, prolificness, prolificness. That was his thing. Listen, baby. Yeah. The, the other thing to mention, by the way, about uh, about this song, too, is the surf guitar mm. uh, that, you know, Brown is appropriating surf guitar. Sure. Uh, and he's doing it as well as like, you know, like at this point, like the Dick Dales. And kind of yeah. a precursor to Brian Wilson's. And so that, that I thought was kind of an interesting touch that surf guitar is not something that you would necessarily associate with Brown, but man, he used it well. Yeah. Well, he used a lot of things well. Next, yep. a huge, his biggest hit yet, Think from 1960, number seven R&B, number 33 pop. James Brown's first top 40 hit was a commercial breakthrough and with its unstoppable groove and delicious horn arrangement, it set the template for what would become the James Brown sound, at least up to the mid-1960s. There was nothing like the James Brown rhythm machine, even in the early 1960s. Great track. Chris? Nope, uh, nothing like the James Brown rhythm machine, and, and this is the beginning of our lesson on how Brown could find those creases and, and he could dig out the nasty lint in the hidden places of the rhythm couch. Yeah. And he could do it at any, at any speed and in any scenario, because think is, is a song that he got a lot of juice. He got a lot of mileage out of, yeah. uh, cause you know, you've got it here, which is the original, which has this nice little up tempo, uh, beat to it. And then you get the live at the Apollo where the version on that is even faster. Yeah. And it's almost like nihilistic. It goes so fast. But he maintains the rhythm and it kind of shows like those those wonderful horn arrangements that he's known for. Man, if you were a horn player with Brown, you better be on your game because you had to keep up because you meant you, yeah. you could go from like super uh, syrupy to like supersonic, like at the snap of a finger. Yeah. Uh, and he did that. And then in 1973, Brown made it into slow burning disco, <laughs> uh, you know, and probably the most famous that might actually, no, this is the most famous version of it, but 73, it, it, he really just kind of showed where he was at, that, you know, Brown was like listening to the times. And so, you know, he's surrounded by like Mayfield and like early, like early kind of stuff, like Pointer Sisters right. and early Cool in the Gang. And so it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I, I can do Cool in the Gang better than Cool in the Gang. And so he whips out Think <laughs> and does a Cool in the Gang kind of hornish uh, <laughs> arrangement to it. And it's, it's phenomenal. And so it's like, okay, I can go slow. I can go a little faster. I can go fast. I could go really, really, really fast with the same song and kick ass no matter what across yeah. the spectrum. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Anyway, the next one uh, on the James Brown hit parade, Baby You're Right from 1961, number two R&B, number 49 pop. Um, this song is ostensibly a bluesy rewrite of Ray Charles's Nighttime is the Right Time. Yep. Uh, Baby, you're right. Is James Brown taking his vocal delivery to a whole new level of ostentatious histrionics in the best way? Of yes. course, uh, you can hear Brown's confidence and ego grow single by single, and the exquisite horn arrangement practically acts as a counterpoint to Brown's aching Herculean vocals. One of the best vocal performances of his career. I love this song. But anyway. Yeah, I, I agree with you about the vocal performance because what this song shows is that if Brown had said to himself, you know what, I'm going to concentrate on blues and yeah. just did blues singing, he would have been right there with Muddy and yeah. some of his other contempt, you know, some of the other folks. And obviously those guys were a little bit older, but he would have been right there maybe with like uh, Bobby Blue Bland and, you know, some of those guys as a, as a blues singer. He, he was just fabulous and this yeah. is just a fabulous blues performance and it's a pure 12 bar blues structure 
And he just gets as much natural dripping horn dog sexuality out of it as he can. And just really, really strong stuff. And to get 12 bar blues that, you know, in the top 50 on the pop in 1961 was kind of a neat feat because yeah. what, you know, the white boys, this is like what, seven years before the white boys break out with, yeah. with the blues sound. And so that's, yeah. that's not bad. Yeah. All right. Next. Night Train from 1962, number five R&B, number 35 pop, another top 40 hit for James. I guess King Records president Sid Nathan had given up blocking Brown's instrumentals because James Brown's second top 40 mainstream hit was, for the most part, a dance instrumental with Brown just shouting out the names of the cities that this groovy train <laughs> will stop at. More than more than anything else, James Brown music was about getting people on the dance floor. And this track is a pure dance floor killer. And one of his live, well, a live favorite from this period of James Brown. Yeah, and this is sort of the the an early uh, manifestation of Brown's thing of more or less talking to his song. And yeah. it, it's almost impro- improvisational. Oh, we're going to start in Miami. Now we're going to go to Atlanta. Now we're going to go to Baltimore. Now we're going to go all the way up the East Coast. And yeah. it's just the, kind of the way he would he would think and just sort of get into his concepts. But right. otherwise, this is Brown, just pure and simple, doing tried and true boogie woogie. Yeah. Uh, right down to, I mean, the, that tenor sax, again, yeah. is, is extremely New Orleans and extremely yeah. Southern and extremely yeah. Chetlin circuit. So... Yeah. Yeah, very much steeped in the black live uh, tradition uh, is yeah. is this song. And again, you know, Brown craved hits like some junkies craved heroin. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, ser- seriously, you know, there was uh, there was a you know the boogie the boogie woogie thing, you know, from like 1956 through again, like here we are in 1962. Uh, you know, you could mine that, and so there you go. It's a pretty uh, blatant uh, appropriation of a lot of those tempos and a lot of those swings of that early 60s era, the kind of stuff that was charting, you know. Now, next, this is an actual album, but it's a live album. And it's masterful. Yes. Live at the Apollo from 1963 that hit number two on the Billboard album chart. Uh, for all the success James Brown was having on the singles charts, especially the R&B charts, it was his reputation as a killer live performer that kept people coming back to his shows. By the early 1960s, Brown had graduated from clubs to theaters and concert halls, and the dirty, gritty soul sound that Brown pioneered had started to influence artists throughout the R&B spectrum. What he didn't have yet was that whammy moment, that record that would vault him into the white mainstream of America. Recorded in 1962 at the Apollo Theater in New York and released the following year, Live at the Apollo marked the moment when James Brown arrived and broke through the mainstream door in a major way, like I said earlier, peaking at number two in the Billboard Albums chart. Way more than his recorded work, Live at the Apollo captures the sizzling intensity of the James Brown live experience. The band is tight, the grooves are explosive, and you can practically feel Brown sweating from the stage into your speakers. Yet, this is not even James Brown's best live album. Which one is that? That will be revealed in the next episode. Yep, stay stay, stay tuned, folks. Although this is pretty damn good. Uh, Number 65 on the current edition of the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list. It was number 25, I think it was 25 on the one from 2012. And so it's a a widely revered record. It's a 32-minute stick of dynamite uh, throughout. And I will say this as album, live album intros goes, uh, go, this one has my favorite. So (laughs) just to set this up, there's a bit, Throughout the Keenan Ivory Wayans classic comedy, uh, black exploitation parody, I'm going to get you, sucker. Mm. In which uh, Wayans's character, uh, you know, there's this riff that like every hero needs a theme song, <laughs> and so every every time he comes on screen, it's you know it's got that sort of you know kind of showy you know sort of uh, flashy over the top uh, song, and then of course at the end of the uh, the end of the movie, he actually comes and the band is actually uh, trailing him, and so they kind of get as much mileage out of that joke as possible. Well. James Brown was the epitome of that statement 
And uh, the theme song at the beginning of this thing is just awesome. So uh, Fats Gonder, who was a uh, Macon, Georgia uh, pianist, but also a, uh, a promoter and uh, sort of a band leader himself, uh, goes up on stage and uh, goes to introduce Brown. He, he lists off all of Brown's hits, which the horn section punctuates with yeah. a, an ever building and ever uh, climbing uh, uh, horn riff. And just kind of, you know, kind of thing as he goes along. And then once Brown and the famous flames folks hit the stage, there's a little theme song there. Again, theme music that is one part Herb Albert Schmaltz, one part Batman theme and all parts James Brown charisma. I mean, you can practically uh, like hear the swing of the cape (laughs) or or the swish of the hair as he struts on stage. Uh, it, it is just perfect. And so, I mean, this, uh, you know, this album, it's a hypnotism by soul as a precursor to hypnotism by funk. Mm. Uh, and that's a lot of these, uh, a lot of these songs, they have that call and response thing, even in the romantic lightly swinging ballad. Uh, you know, there's a 10 and a half minute workout on there where uh, even the, the screaming girls become an instrument because he's uh, Brown is such a master of, uh, of rhythm. That it's almost like the uh, the girls are screaming on cue. Uh, it's, <laughs> it really is something. Uh, it's a song called "Lost Someone" that goes on for ten and a half minutes. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty uh, pretty amazing. And you know, he had a, an eight uh, an eight piece horn section with him, so uh, damn near damn near perfect. Uh, just slice of what James Brown was about at that point. It's yeah. like a roll up, and it has a like what is it like eight song medley. That it's like, yeah. okay, I'm going to do what I'm going to do here, but I'm going to get the hits out of the way, and we're going to do them all in six minutes. <laughs> uh, so, again, it, it, the energy, it's not just the energy, but it's the economy. And it really right. just underscores that Brown did nothing by accident. He may yeah. have sounded like he was all fucked up and was doing things by accident, but nothing was accident with James Brown. Right. All right, back to the singles. Yep, 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 I'll- yep. Out of Sight from 1964, number five R&B, number 24 pop. He's in the top 30 now. He's Uh, he's creeping up there. The the momentum generated by Live at the Apollo definitely enhanced the the success of Out of Sight, his biggest hit yet and first top 30 hit with its slinky bass line and even slinkier horn arrangement. This whole song is slinky. Uh, Out of Sight slinks and slithers like a funky snake that defies you not to sway those hips of yours. This is uh, one of his most subtly grooving songs. Yeah, it is. It is. And it may actually also be the unofficial birth of what became known as the one. And uh, the one will be basically the musical theme of part two. Uh, That's the, uh, the, the name given for uh, Brown's signature beat. Uh, yeah. that he uh, created and basically changed everything with. Uh, we wouldn't have hip hop if it wasn't for the one. And so what you hear here is he's starting to break free from R&B and soul convention and he's looser and he's more eccentric. And it's the uh, first indication of where we get Brown grunting as much as he is singing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like he, it's like he just can't control that stored up energy anymore. And right. so it's just, it's getting wilder and he's getting more confident and mm. so it's, you know, some of the verses sound like that spur of the moment commentary. I mean, especially in the outro where he's sure. almost like having a conversation up there and just talking into nobody in particular. Uh, yeah. And and so this is really, you know, the, you know, the James Brown that we, we all kind of put on the pedestal. Uh, and, and that's too bad. As we're pointing out in this episode, the guy was an amazing conventional R&B singer. Uh, he really was. He could have gotten a career out of it. He could have not yeah. shifted. And his profile would have kept on growing enough to the point where he would have probably gotten to the top 10 just playing it straight. Right. Uh, might have taken a couple more years, but he probably would have done it. Well, right. he takes he takes this pivot uh, here starting in 64, and it meant everything and changed everything and made Brown the intergalactic superstar that, we, that he uh, yeah. has, has been ever since. Speaking of being intergalactic... Papa's got a brand new bag from bah! 19 right from 1965 number 1 R&B number 8 pop 
Yep. He has arrived. After years of building his career from the ground up, each single being more successful than the previous one, each year of touring, uh, converting more fans, each year of, of, of musical development, making a finely honed blade out of his unique brand of dirty, funky soul. James Brown finally crossed over to the big time when Papa's Got a Brand New Bag broke into the top 10 of the Billboard pop chart. The song itself is a revelation with its staccato stop-start dynamic. The horn section is as much a rhythm instrument as the drums, uh, and it was by far the funkiest, sweatiest, grooviest song to ever grace the upper echelon of the American singles chart. This song was a revelation back Absolutely. in 1965. Absolutely. And, and here's a quote from Brown that comes from an autobiography he uh, co-wrote with a guy named Bruce Tucker that kind of gets into where he's headed and his thinking. He says, quote, Aretha and Otis and Wilson Pickett were out there and getting big. I was still called a soul singer. I still call myself that. But musically, I had already gone off in a different direction. I had discovered that my strength was not in the horns. It was in the rhythm. Yeah. Unquote. Now, that might be a little bit of an ironic statement, considering the song begins with one of the more most recognizable horn riffs of in yeah. all popular music. Yeah. And then even from there, the horns kind of are just awesome. Well, you know, it's it's uh, if the listeners had been saying to themselves, uh, well, now, wait, is there an emphasis on the first beat with Out of Sight? Uh, if that was a struggle, well, the struggle ends here. Uh, this hits and slaps and bursts and explodes and just absolutely pulverizes on the one. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely inescapable. And the revolution, the funk revolution is now in full force. Uh, coincidentally, less famously, there is a part two, which I believe was either a B-side or released later to uh, uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, uh, which basically is the same riff and beat, but with Maceo Parker, the great, 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 great yes. Maceo Parker uh, uh, manning the sax, uh, a sax solo. Right. And so uh, here comes Maceo Parker. Fred Wesley was not on board yet in, on trombone. But uh, this is sort of the, the very earliest inkling of the JBs is showing up yes. in 1965. Yeah. And also, and then, this is number 34 on that Rolling Stone Greatest Songs list. Wow. I wonder, I wonder what this where this one falls. I Got You, I Feel Good from 1965, number one R&B, number three in the pop chart. Now, James Brown was on an unconscious role in 1965 after the monumental success of Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. He followed that up with what would go on to become his probably his signature song and career-defining hit, I Got You, I Feel Good. Uh, it has a similar stop-start dynamic as Papa's, but it grooves even more. It has a delectable bridge punctuated by that ever-so-groovalicious saxophone. Uh, in a year when the Beatles and Motown acts were dominating pop charts around the world, not to mention breakthroughs by the Birds, the Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan, the presence of James Brown's take-no-prisoners, sweaty, grimy, gritty style of R&B and soul on the pop charts was a victory, really was a victory for black America. Yeah, it, it was. This is one of the most influential singles of all time. And yeah. it's funny that you say it was a victory for black America, uh, primarily because uh, white people at weddings everywhere celebrate Mr. Dynamite for all of eternity because of this song. Right. Uh, it gave them a, a simple burst of danceability that no one, regardless of talent or rhythmic deficit, could look truly foolish dancing to. Uh, that's, <laughs> how, that's how solid and awesome yeah. this rhythm is. And again, essentially, this, is, this song is 12-bar blues too, but it's the best kind of like funky-ass uh, 12 bar blues uh, imaginable. And so, uh, you know, he, this song is just so minimal too. That's the amazing yeah. thing is that there's so much energy to it, but right. basically it's a barely discernible baseline, a hi-hat uh, drum beat and drum fill. It's all hi-hat and then yeah. horns. And that's like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like, it's like those horn punches and the hi-hat yeah. and then just Brown doing his thing. And so, yeah. I mean, this is just a, a grand thesis for Brown of like, it's the spaces around the music that matter as much as the actual music. And I right. think this is the epitome, or this is the classic example 
of mm-hmm. how much the uh, stuff around the song, the rhythm, the beat could uh, predominate uh, versus the music. Uh, just an amazing accomplishment. Oh, and uh, you know what song is not on that greatest songs of all time list? What? This one. Really? It's crazy. Yeah, there's only three Brown songs. Uh, there's uh, Please, Please, Please. Uh, or actually, yeah, it's, uh, I think, yeah, there's Please, Please, Please. There's Get Up, I Feel Like Being a Sex Machine and Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. But I didn't see, and maybe I maybe I missed it, but I did not see I Feel Good. I, I think there should be 10 James Brown songs in there at least. Yeah, it, for, I, there's at least four uh, on there. So, uh, but I didn't see this. I, mean, I thought it would be top five. It wasn't in the top five. So it's like, what in the world? Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, fuck them. Uh, this is one of the greatest songs of all time, according to yours truly, Curmudgeons. So there you go. Yeah. Eat, eat, eat that, drink that, and take it to bed with you. Exactly. And I hope you go to bed thinking of the next episode, folks, because we have reached the end of part one, 1956 to 65, of James Brown, the super bad Mr. Dynamite of all legacies. We'll mm. be coming back uh, in a couple of weeks mm. with part two. And this one is a hell of a one. 1966 to 1974. Funk power. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Brown, Mr. Dynamite changes everything almost literally. We would not have hip hop if it was not for James Brown and the one. We would not have like 75% of the pop music that we have now if it wasn't for James Brown. Hell, we wouldn't even have Beyonce. Uh, Beyonce. <laughs> yes. Uh, Beyonce. If it yeah. wasn't for James Brown. Uh, we, wouldn't so, have James, we wouldn't have Prince. We wouldn't have Michael Jackson. Nope. Uh, and, a whole and lot of people we wouldn't have. <laughs> right. And it's because of the Brown that we start to get in 65 that is in full fucking force by 1971. Uh, yeah. And it is because of that version of James Brown that we have everything that we know today. It's in the DNA. That's how influential it was. And that's what we will be talking about uh, next time. And we will tell uh, you why that is so next episode. Absolutely. And before then, just remember uh, our curmudgeonly community uh, on Facebook. Uh, it's pretty lively. There's a few uh, frequent fire uh, members and participants in the community. We want you to be one, too. Uh, Tony Fletcher actually just joined the community. Uh, he's now a full-fledged member. Uh, thank you, Tony, for guesting on our last episode on REM. We hope you are doing well. Uh, also, uh, if you have any opinions about Mr. Brown or anything that we've talked about in this episode, uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And then also, uh, it's waning, but we're still on, on Twitter, and uh, and it's still fun to check us out. Uh, you know, we, we tend to get uh, some great mileage out of teasing John Rich, the country singer who's gone full fascist, uh, you know, and then there's other uh, great feats up there as well like Jason Isbell's is great Mike Mills of REM's is great so they're still there and then also you know, we'll going forward expect the Spotify playlist uh, this one will be fun because uh, it'll be early James Brown uh, all the time uh, motored up uh, for you to queue up so basically these songs we just talked about 